This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a special show on games for once. So I thought we should put the work of tomorrow aside and instead talk about the play of tomorrow. Well, that show was so much fun and I got so much buzz from uh, the social media that uh, my producer Matt Dads and I decided we should have a follow-up show on games. There indeed is a lot of good stuff happening in the gaming space. Good old board games are still going strong, be it games like Monopolies or The Settlers of Catan. But online and virtual reality games have created an entire new genre of games. Uh, Pokemon Go, for example, has been downloaded by hundreds of millions of players and has created over a billion dollars in revenue. Pokemon Go is not played in your living room, but instead turns the real world into a big playing field. So games at home and games in the virtual world are the topic of my show today. To help us explore this topic, I will be speaking to two wonderful guests. Tanya Thompson is the Director of Global Product Acquisition at Hasbro. And in the second half of the show, I will talk to Ashit Bhagava, who is the Head of Global Product Marketing at Niantic, which is a company that brought us Pokemon Go and is now working on a Harry Potter game. At this point, welcome, Tanya. Hey, Christian. Nice to be, nice to be with you. Hey, Tanya. Uh, how do you at Hasbro call your customers? Are we your gamers? Are we your players? Are we your customers? How do you call people like me? Uh, people like you that are buying our games, are we typically call you consumers. Well, I, I hope you would have thought of me as a player, but I, I take consumers. Um, <laughs> so you, you produce what we all play. If uh, you had a couple of hours... Uh, Either tonight or if you think back to the last weekend, do you have like a favorite game that you like to play? Uh, that's a common question that I get asked. And um, my answer to that is really, it depends on who I'm uh, playing with. So um, if it's uh, a bunch of other gamers like myself, if it is uh, my family who tend to like lighter games, if it's my, um, my teenagers, uh, my kids, then um, it just depends on kind of the level of um, basically the, the, the level of gaming that they're interested in because there's such a diverse um, you know, spectrum of games. But I'll say with my family, since I've got teenagers, um, over the Christmas break, uh, they brought out and they love to play Speak Out. And it's this game that is um, where you put an appliance in your mouth and then you have to speak. You may have seen this online or on different um, shows and whatnot. And it's just hilarious. And that's why they love it, is because it really makes um, a really fun time together, and so they love kind of talking with this appliance in their mouth and and also watching their friends do it and trying to determine what it is they're actually saying. Now, Hasbro is a $5 billion corporation. Uh, can you tell us a bit about Hasbro, the product line with, with brands like PlaySchool or Tonka? Sure. So we're a global play and entertainment company, and we're committed to creating the world's best play experiences. So from toys and games, but also to television, movies, digital gaming, and consumer products, Hasbro offers a variety of ways for audiences to experience its iconic brands. So you probably know many of them. Um, they would include Nerf, My Little Pony, Transformers, Play-Doh, Monopoly, Baby Alive, Magic the Gathering, as well as our premier partner brands um, like Disney Princess, Marvel, and Star Wars. So you mentioned that um, you are active in the video and the online world, but if, if I, I think from the perspective of, I mean, one of my all-time favorite games, which is, I guess, why I'm in business school, has been Monopoly, um, uh, the good old board game. Is there a certain revival of these good old board games? Uh, as a gamer myself, absolutely, I've seen this. Um, and I think it's because um, over the last, uh, let's say, five to ten years, there's been this move towards digital experiences. 
And I know as a parent myself with three children, uh, I'm looking to create experiences where I get face-to-face with my kids and we connect over the table. And so I'm not the only one with the, this desire as my kids grow and wanting to stay connected with them. Um, and also just other people, that face-to-face experience is so important. And so because of that, I believe um, the board games where you actually are face-to-face with people around the table and it creates such a, a great experience to connect with others, um, that platform has increased. So we've seen um, an increase in board games uh, in general and people wanting those kinds of experiences. So the user need is some form of digital detox here, right? I mean, we're spending so much time at work, at school these days, in front of our screens that just talking to people, being at the same table seems like a real user need still. Yeah, there's a real balance that people want, both with digital and face-to-face, and the digital so readily available. Um, you're, you're, we're now looking now for getting back to face-to-face, so absolutely that balance is important. Would you see the digital world, online gaming in particular, would you see this as a disruption for you that U.S. Hasbro had to react to, or do you just see this as part of just kind of that's how any industry goes? No, I think it's a part of being a company in today's environment. You know, we're embracing digital as much as we're embracing analog, and it's important for us to do so. Consumers want to connect with companies across, like, multiple platforms. So there's not only the physical product that we produce, but there's also, you know, movies and and other multimedia effort that we focus on. So we're across the board, and I think a company needs to be in order to to survive in today's environment. Do you you think the the consumers have in mind Hasbro as a company, or do they... I mean, you have like a thousand brands within within Hasbro. Do they resonate more? Do they think of Play School or Monopoly as is that the level of kind of emotional brand identification? I think because Hasbro has been blessed with so many incredible brands that people would think of the brands um, from their childhood or from great experiences that they may have had. Um, and then there's also the newer kind of like Magic the Gathering is uh, part of Wizards of the Coast, which is also owned by Hasbro. And they have a digital experience called Magic the Gathering Arena, which is online. So there's lots of different kind of ways that we're connecting to consumers. And that's important because I think in these days and times where everything is very much in social media, um, consumers are looking for a way to connect with the brands that they buy. And that's why there's, you know, we're at Comic-Con. We have uh, HasCon here in Rhode Island that we do, which is a, like a Comic-Con, but only focused on Hasbro brands. And it's a way for us to connect with consumers because that's really important. Can we go back to my kind of the, the, the game that I played as a child? I remember when I played this with my own children when they grew up, and I almost look forward to playing it with my grandchildren. Yeah. Monopoly. Right. So um, I was surprised when I went on Amazon this morning to kind of figure out how much a box of Monopoly uh, costs. It was surprisingly cheap. Do you know how the price of Monopoly has changed over the last kind of 40 years that I've been playing it? Well, I I don't know kind of the the history of where it started and where it is now. I do know that us as a games team, we're certainly very much aware of what consumers uh, will pay for a game. And so that's always top of mind when we're putting out games is kind of what is the threshold? What is the sweet spot? What is it that consumers can afford? So whether it's just increased with the kind of the, 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 the timing of it from back in the 1930s to now, uh, obviously, um, would have increased. But in terms of kind of our awareness and, and when a game is, um, is developed, it's definitely top of mind. We have the consumers in our in our you know where the consumers are are willing to pay. So you have with Monopoly, you have created many spin-offs or versions or customizations of, of Monopoly as, as as forms of innovations building on. Are there like online versions of of Monopoly or kind of digital versions, or has it kind of stayed that uh, that square playing board with four times ten rows and and a jail somewhere in the upper right? 
Right. I know that um, I'm not sure actually if there's an online version. I do know that there is a lot of um, kind of online um, focus around Monopoly. So, for instance, when we redid the tokens a, a number of a couple of years back where we were looking to update the tokens we used our community online in order to vote on those tokens and decide which should change wh- why they should change and we we went through a whole kind of uh, revamping of that and we used our online community in order to do that um, and then of course there's if you went online I'm sure you saw Fortnite Monopoly it was a big hit over the holidays for us and that was a way Way of capitalizing on the obvious popularity of the video game of Fortnite, mm-hmm. and then creating a um, like a, a, an, on a table uh, top version of it through Monopoly. So let's talk about your business. Really, this is business radio after all. So from a revenue perspective, I can see that you 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 sell a box that's going to stay again with kind of good old board games. Uh, again, I saw uh, on Amazon Monopoly based version was selling for thirteen fourteen dollars. Uh, that box is uh, is made in Asia, I assume, and you're selling it uh, with. Uh, is, is that? A, can you give us a rough sense of what it costs you to produce Monopoly? I don't know those actual numbers in terms of what the production would be. I just know that, like in my role, what I'm doing as a person for Hasbro is I'm looking for new game ideas, and I and I speak with um, inventors all over the world in order to do this. And so I'm more focused on kind of bringing in new new ideas and new concepts versus kind of the the the, the retail end that you're speaking of. So let's let's talk about that process from kind of game to idea. So uh, there's in any company there's some form of internal innovation and there's kind of external innovation to acquisition. So it strikes me that um, you must make the choice as the director of global product acquisition of to what extent you can innovate a new title by having a, an R&D lab, if you will, right, a, for a bunch of people playing and kind of experimenting versus looking at kind of inventors outside and, and, and just acquiring these games. How, how do you think about that innovation process? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the way that we look at it, and I'm part of a, a bigger, certainly, acquisition team, but also I work very closely with the games team, and we have this phenomenal internal games team and when we're looking for the direction to go we aren't necessarily looking is it internal or is it external we're just looking for the best idea and the great thing here about Hasbro is I can honestly say that the 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 leaders of the games team and the people in the games team it's not so important where the idea comes from but what's most important is what the idea is and if they think consumers will resonate with it so it's it's great. So what I'm doing as an individual is I'm out meeting um, inventors, both our lovely traditional inventors as well as brand new new inventors, and I I kind of collect the ideas that they share and pitch to me, and then I take them and I present the ones that I think our team would be interested in, and I present them to our internal team, and the internal team looks at them and really looks at it with an eye like the eye of you know could this uh, be a great hit for Hasbro and does this align with what we're doing and so uh, if it does then we move forward with that and we um, will license the idea from the inventor and uh, move forward with the concept and develop it uh, in-house so that's kind of how it goes is we're just looking for the best ideas it's not about who or where the idea comes from. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Tanya Thompson, the Director of Global Product Acquisition at Hasbro. And we're talking about innovation, internal innovation through people coming up for, within Hasbro about new kind of titles and concepts, as well as acquisition and external innovation. Uh, so, Tanya, where, where do you meet? You, you mentioned you listen to these pitches of inventors. Uh, where do you meet these inventors? Uh, are they like are they like big fairs? Are there kind of standardized processes that people come to you and contact you? How do you find people who come up with new games? Yeah, so that's a that's another good question. There are trade shows within our industry that I attend. So the toy fairs, they're called. There's uh, the largest one in in North America is in New York. It's coming up in February, so that's the New York Toy Fair, as well as the largest toy fair in the world is in Nuremberg, Germany. 
So I'll be uh, going there as well to the Nuremberg Toy Fair. So there's a trade shows that we go to that the inventors, both new and, um, and, and established, will attend. And they'll set up an appointment with me and we'll, they will pitch me their concepts. But then as well, we're kind of looking for innovation everywhere. So those trade shows that I spoke of, but then there's also other um, events, uh, innovation conferences, people or places where innovators, you know, will attend and we'll meet them there. And they might be somebody that's completely outside of the industry at the moment, but they have an amazing play experience or an amazing play idea. And so I'll meet with them uh, there as well. Uh, Some people will connect with us um, through, we have um, in, an online portal called Spark, so spark.hasbro.com, and uh, people will go there and submit ideas. So we're really trying to find ideas all over. I do a lot of travel. So um, I last year, for instance, I was in Israel, I was in Japan, I was in South Korea. So it's not it's it's global. We're a global company, so we're looking for uh, ideas from all over the globe. At what point do you know that a game is becoming a blockbuster? I mean, you you've been in this profession for a while. You talk to many people. Is it that you can you you see a game and you know like yep that's going to be great? Uh, I read somewhere that Monopoly from when it was launched by Parker was initially rejected a couple of times because people yeah. saw it as too long, too complicated. Yeah. So at what point do you know that something is going to be like a Settlers of Catan, or like a real break a breakthrough, a blockbuster? So you can imagine I'm seeing so many um, ideas through, let's say, the course of a year even. Um, and so for me, when I see an idea that either I know is aligned with our, our initiatives and what we're doing internally, or I look at an idea and it's completely surprising or interesting to me, that is always means something to me in my gut. When I see something and I'm like, oh, I've never seen that before. That's super interesting. I think that might be right for a mass market consumer. So that's what I'm looking at when I'm out kind of uh, traveling and looking at um, different concepts from all over the place. Uh, there's also um, what we think is going to provide the best play experience. So it might, so for instance, there's a game that we launched uh, in 2018 called Don't Step in It. And it is a tremendous success for us. And it's this uh, wonderful game that has a lot of, like if I say don't step it to you, to you and you see the, t- the, the front of the box and it's a child that's blindfolded that's about to step in a, in a pile of Play-Doh poo, um, then you kind of understand immediately what it's about. But also for me, it's more about, and I think for our consumers, it's about the experience is uh, just going to be a, a, you know, a, a happy, joyful one. And so it obviously has resonated. So I, I know kind of at the beginning where it's like, wow, this would be a really interesting experience where people are used to playing with Play-Doh with their hands, but certainly not their feet. And what a great payoff that is. And what a great concept that people will be able to look at and automatically know something about what the game is about. And then now it's hit the shelves, and so we know it's a big success. So um, that is, uh, that, that's a game that I'm super proud of. So that's interesting. Uh, talk about children, right? I mean, uh, we are all gamers, players. We love to play. But for, you know, speaking at least for myself, uh, childhood is a little behind me now. And so when I now look at a new title, I must basically form some empathy with the children playing it and imagine, like, how they would react to it. Is the product development process for children's game different than for grown-up games? Um, I think that when we're developing games, uh, the consumer who's purchasing the game is obviously an adult or um, like a, a parent or a caregiver, and but they're purchasing it to play with um, their family or some other people. So it, it really depends on kind of we have different divisions of games. So we have children's games and then we have adult games, and what we're looking for is uh, different because with um, uh, uh, a child, they're they're looking to be, you know, they're looking for silly and fun. And for an adult, it might be something different. So we kind of look at that. We're 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 thinking of the consumer. We're thinking of the end play experience and who we're trying to actually connect with. Our games. You mentioned uh, the 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 child is 
I don't blame them looking for fun and something you know that makes them laugh. Are games uh, from the parents' perspective are they becoming more educational, functional? I get the sense that especially parents in this country they are so eager to prepare their children for college and some kind of big kind of learning payoff that comes down the street. Do you see that your customers are more demanding? not just for a laugh, but some 10-point improvement in SAT score? Yeah, I mean, I started my career as a teacher, as an educator, and I've worked for other smaller companies before, and there's definitely that is something that is on the rise, which is like parents who want an experience that is going to be educational and teach their child something. I think here at Hasbro, um, you know, I'm when I'm out looking for games, I'm looking for whatever that amazing play experience is at the end with the people around the table. So it tends to be like full of fun and laughter and often in this environment and in and, and and our society, things are always so serious and, and kids are exposed to things so much earlier, which are, are very much serious, like the, the state of, of, of our climate and, uh, and all, all these other sorts of things, getting into college as they grow. There's so many stresses. So for, for me, what we are focused on at the moment is kind of that play experience at the end and if it's full of fun, joy and laughter. How well can you predict how a child will react to something? So uh, I can tell you, I mean, you had this great example with Don't Step In It. Uh, was it in it or on it? You, you, the Play-Doh, the feet. Um, you can tell me the story, and uh, I might have a humorous reaction or not, but, but that's me as opposed to the child. How, how, how well can you imagine uh, how a child reacts to something? Well, I think there's um, a lot of experience and kind of knowledge that goes into why we decide to do what we do. But then in the end, it all comes down to if the consumers resonate with it as well or not. I think that we at Hasbro have a, a great sense of that and and have, um, when we're thinking about that final experience, um, have a, a way to kind of know and, and have been very successful with it. Um, and so... Um, but I mean, honestly, we none of us knows until it hits the market. That that is what is the real telltale sign is how the consumers react to it. So that's interesting. Uh, and I say this, Tanya, with all due respect, but designing a game is not putting a man on the moon. And so the the cost of trying something are relatively low. So when you launch a title, um, do you really uh, get the feedback on the market and see what sells, or do you have like an internal play lab? where you get uh, a certain number of, 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 of children and grown-ups show up and you pre-play the game before launch? Yeah, we're definitely doing a lot of testing prior to the launch. So everything that comes on shelf, it doesn't come uh, onto shelf like haphazardly. It's there and it's been well thought out and it's been extremely um, kind of really examined. And so we do have an internal, what we call a fun lab here, uh, where we have families that come in and they're part of testing. And a lot of our games go through that testing to kind of really figure out what is the best experience that 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 happens with people that are that we're focused on the game uh so if it's for kids then we bring in kids if it's adults we test with adults so that is all done on the front end because we want it you as you, you said it's you know it's different than putting a man on the moon but for us it's just as important because putting out great play experiences for for myself and for Hasbro is just really important. We want, you know, we want to increase joy, love, and connection um, in in the world. And so we put our, our our hardest and our most biggest efforts into each product to get it to shelf. And so things like you said about testing and things like that, we talk to the markets, we talk to um, the consumers, we we get we do a lot of evaluation in order to get it to shelf. So speaking of FunLab, as a, as a business school professor, I think of any kind of workflow as a process. So you must have a certain number of ideas that you consider for games that you consider every year, and you test a certain number with, uh, with, with, with kids in, in FunLab, and then you launch yet a smaller number. Can you give us a sense of how this kind of innovation pipeline or funnel looks like, that for every game that you launched, have you played five games that you didn't launch and had a thousand ideas that you rejected? Can you can you give us a sense of how that pipeline looks like? 
Yeah, so I'm basically the 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 numbers roughly would be I'm out there and in a year I might see over 2000 concepts. And then on average I might bring in uh 500 internally to show. And then we may license somewhere around 30 in the game space. And um and somewhere between say 15 and 30 will make it to shelf. And from those ideas, the concepts that we've seen, and then, and then, um, about, you know, there might be one to three hits, so in a year. So it's not, um, I, I respect inventors and the people and innovators that I meet with because the odds aren't great, but I mean, if you get a hit with Hasbro, it's a big deal. Well, and I think that speaks to your management competence, right, that you really are good at managing that innovation pipeline from the 2,000 concepts to the kind of the 30 games that you really test to the 15 that you launch, getting three hits. In some sense, it's like the pharmaceutical industries, right? I mean, you, you can't always predict, and so you have to try stuff, and you want to be smart about that. Absolutely. Talk about, uh, as a last question, like, where do you see this space in 10 years from now? Um, so where, where are things going? Um, so we're, at Hasbro, we're committed to reinventing invention. So we're always looking to the future. We're interested in new ideas from new voices and appreciate that great ideas can come from anywhere. So each person on this planet has their own unique blend of life experiences. And, you know, that informs how they think, how they act, how they feel. So no people are exactly, uh, no two people are exactly alike. So it's those differences that we want to celebrate, and it's those differences that inspire us to create great play experiences. So we are really considering product from all angles. Um, consumers want to travel with the brand across so many platforms and experiences these days, from face-to-face games to digital games that we spoke of, consumer products, location-based entertainment like Hascon and other things. So that's how we think about our brands and our business, and it's how consumers experience brands these days. Says Tanya Thompson, the Director of Global Product Acquisition at Hasbro. Thank you so much, Tanya. Uh, at this point, for the second half of the show, it's my great pleasure to welcome Achit. Bagava, head of global product marketing at Niantic, the company that brought us Pokemon Go and is now working on a Harry Potter game. Welcome, Achit. Hi, how's it going? So your company turned the world into a playground using augmented reality. Do you recall where that initial concept of augmented reality games came from? So uh, I think at, at Niantic, you know, we've always had this thesis, building games that get people out and about. And I think when you think of what a real-world game looks like, you know, for us, it made a lot of sense to create games that, you know, when people are outside playing them, how do you really enhance that gameplay experience? And augmented reality uh, felt like a really good fit. Uh, you know, when we started building these games, you know, augmented reality wasn't really, you know, as hot of a topic as it is today. Uh, we started in, in 2010, uh, 2011. And, uh, you know, the, the thesis was always... How do we use games to get people outside? And I think, uh, you know, along the way, we've seen how AR can really help make that experience joyful. It's interesting when I when you do you talk about that that history. Uh, my brother is a big fan of, of of geocaching, right? He's kind of hunting for these little geocaches, and that seems mm-hmm. to me like another game where people are outside in the real world. Is 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 that is that an inspiration, or where where did you take that kind of that really brilliant insight? that uh, it's a lot of fun to play in front of your PlayStation, but it's even cooler to just have the world be your playground. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, a lot of us on, you know, that were sort of early Niantic members, um, you know, definitely looked at geocaching as as something that we not only enjoyed, but also, you know, like drew inspiration from in, in ways that, that really like, you know, for us, what geocaching would do was you know, similar to what scavenger hunts would do, which was that that sense of, um, you know, exploring a new place, trying to find the hidden clues that are all around you and really like get your like, you know, blood pumping to sort of, you know, get to that next place, that next point. And and all of this is happening, you know, in your own neighborhood or your own city or or a city that you're visiting. So um, definitely, you know, geocaching was something that, you know, we all uh, enjoyed. Um, but I think, you know, uh, our founder, uh, John Hankey, you know, he has a really awesome uh, background, which, you know, we can get into. But I remember, like, in my early days, you know, he would often talk about this notion of, you know, 
his uh, his kids, uh, you know, staying indoors, uh, playing Minecraft. And it's a beautiful, warm, sunny day. And, you know, he lives in Oakland in the East Bay and, uh, you know, talking about, hey, like, what can we do to get them outside? And, uh, you know, I, I, I felt the same way, like a bunch of me and my friends were playing console games. And, you know, when it's a, when it's a gorgeous day, um, you know, that's really keeping you in. So the, the thesis was really, um, what can we do to give you the same joy that you get out of like a console game type experience, but forces you to go outside? And uh, that's where, you know, for, for John and, and, you know, the founding team of Niantic, that, that sort of urge to build experiences, uh, you know, that, that get you off the couch really, you know, came from. Talk about the first kind of round of products. I mean, before Pokemon Go, you already had other products on the market. Uh, so so how, what, what were then the first products on the market? Yeah, so the first app that we launched was uh, Field Trip. Um, Field Trip is uh, still available in the app stores. Uh, we don't support it anymore, but it's a, it's a fascinating app that still brings a lot of joy to, to its users. It's an app that ran, runs on the background of your phone and uh, sends you notifications about where you are. So, uh, for instance, if I'm in San Francisco and I'm walking along the Embarcadero, it'll give me these cool pop-up notifications like, um, you know, underneath the Boulevard restaurant, uh, you know, this was the one location, uh, you know, on Embarcadero and Mission where one when the... 1906 earthquake and subsequent fire happened. This was at one location which actually uh, was unaffected by the fires. And, uh, you know, uh, they used, you know, whiskey uh, that was, you know, in their basement. Um, they, they used that to sort of, you know, give, give, give that to the firemen to, you know, ensure that the, the attention would be paid to that location. You know, there's all these like interesting, like hidden facts and stories that you learn, of, you know, through this app. So the idea with that was to, you know, try this sense, this, this notion of ubiquitous computing, where as you're walking, no matter where you are, based on your location, uh, you know, your phone is basically computing what's around you and surfacing interesting facts and, and uh, giving you, you know, updates on lifestyle type of, you know, news or um, historical facts or movies that were filmed at that location or what have you. So that was the idea, and it was, again, location-based. Uh, it wasn't a game, but it was this experience of sort of exploring and, and, and learning more about where you were. Talk so that about, was the first app. Yeah, now let's think about so the, the, the unique thing about well, the signature move here is, is, is the location-based technology, right? Is that, that co Correct. Combining the, the, the geolocation of the user with some specific content, and you you provided the content, like, I mean, I love that whiskey anecdote, especially since I'm heading to San Francisco on Thursday. Um, but um, did you provide all that content or is that content crowdsourced? Yeah, so that is a good question. So, you know, we, we thought a lot about what would make the content really, you know, uh, authentic. And I think uh, we decided not to crowdsource. Uh, the, it made a lot of sense to ensure that there was you know, authenticity and also, um, you know, accuracy of, of reporting. So what we did was we actually partnered with uh, a bunch of uh, publishers. A lot of these publishers were hyper-local uh, publishers that put out these really, you know, uh, cute amount of, you know, stories and, and uh, they, they put up their own, like, historical, you know, maps and, and whatnot. So we had uh, a spectrum of publishers from Arcadia, which was, you know, which is one of the nation's largest historical publishers to, you know, a small, uh, you know, sort of like mom and mom and, you know, mom and pop uh, store, um, uh, but, but, but a blog, you know, which, which was just putting out uh, really like cool, uh, you know, updated content. So we had with Field Trip, we had over 200 publishers across the country and, and, and across the globe. And these publishers were, you know, um, in many cases, very reputed and uh you know they were putting out this content and we were curating that content and uh geotagging that content so that you know it would surface at the right location can you give us a rough sense of the development complexity of something like that so the the, the content that one that content partners they, they they have the content but it, it still needs to be tagged is that something like 50 person years or i mean i'm just totally wrong i have absolutely no clue can you give us a rough sense of how much work went into that 
Yeah, we had a sizable team uh, for field trip, and you know, and, and at this point, you know, Niantic was a, in its you know sort of uh, you know infancy stage. You know, the, Niantic as a as a team was you know founded uh, within Google, um, and you know, just to sort of take a step back and give you a sense of where sort of we came from. Um, our, again, our founder John Hankey, uh, you know, back in the day, he founded a company called Keyhole. Uh, you know, along with a bunch of really, really smart people. And, uh, you know, Keyhole was a company that built, uh, you know, a lot of uh, uh, technology uh, that basically allowed for, uh, you know, maps to be created and, and, and rendered on, on, on digital devices. And uh, John's company, Keyhole, was acquired by Google, and the technology be- behind Keyhole became what is today known as Google Earth. And, uh, you know, along the way, uh, John uh, became the head of the geo organization within Google. And, you know, he was leading Google Earth, Google Maps, you know, Street View, and, you know, and a bunch of other teams. And in 2010, uh, you know, he decided to, uh, you know, step away from that, that that organization had, you know, absolutely killed it, created some incredible products. And he wanted to, you know, go back into, you know, uh, and, and do something smaller, uh, something different. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, Niantic was, you know, uh, you know, incubated within Google as, as this sort of autonomous unit of sorts. And, you know, he started building, building a team, uh, you know, uh, and, and the, the thesis was we have all this real expertise that we've built up with, with maps, uh, with, with, geo, with creating geo databases. How do we use that to, you know, build games? And, uh, you know, John had a background in gaming. He had launched a startup called 3DO, uh, which, uh, uh, which, you know, uh, became, which, which led to one of the first ever MMOs, uh, you know, Meridian 59, uh, you know, which uh, was very successful back in the day. So with, with his gaming past, he decided to, you know, basically get back into it. And that, that was basically the thesis, um, you know, when they started Niantic. And, you know, field trip was an idea that that came up, and you know, this, we decided to sort of dive into it uh, just by 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 because you know it felt like that would be something really cool from a use case standpoint. But we also knew that uh, the learnings, the lessons that will come out of field trip, would also help with you know ingress, which was also being uh, co-developed at the time. So that's sort of the sort of you know foundation. Um, you know, but to 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 answer your question more directly. You know, we had a small team of, you know, about a handful of engineers, you know, and product product managers that were basically responsible for, you know, the development of Field Trip. It started pretty small. Uh, it was, you know, uh, sort of single-digit people. Um, but, but yeah, it was, you know, it was basically a several-month project. And then, you know, um, you know, such, such an application, you know, the, the amount of time it took us then, you know, the amount of time today would probably be different. But 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 it's not it's not that you need like a massive team to do something like this. I think we also were really lucky that we had some really talented engineers like uh, Life Wielden, who was you know sort of the the founding engineer for Field Trip, uh, who really like uh, you know dove into that idea uh, you know that was his and and really you know uh, spearheaded the the engineering of that project. So roughly, uh, if I get the math right here, was the timeline roughly five years later came Pokemon Go. Uh, can you tell us how, how how that game came about? Yeah, so after we launched Field Trip, uh, you know, we were simultaneously building Ingress, which was our sort of first real world game. Uh, the the thought behind Ingress was uh, to create a game that would be a little bit like Capture the Flag, but in the real world. And the flags that you try to capture are real life art installations, museums, libraries, interesting places that uh, that would be. Uh, really fun for people to visit. And, uh, you know, the motivation behind uh, having these real-life locations uh, be points of interest in the game was, you know, precisely, uh, you know, that it was precisely John's sort of thesis that um, when you can combine, you know, a real-world actual physical location and bring it and, 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 and make it sort of relevant in a game setting, it really makes it fun when you're actually there um, to, to play the game, but it also makes it uh, easy for you to discover new places, learn about, uh, you know, cities, learn more about neighborhoods, and that sort of thing. So, um, 
Ingress uh, was was uh, released uh, in November of 2012 as this sort of uh, sci-fi, you know, sort of inspired by the J.J. Abrams or, or you know, the Jason Bourne type of sort of feel. Uh, it had this, like, sort of uh, sci-fi background. Um, there were two sides, the Enlightenment and the Resistance, and, uh, you know, you're basically trying to battle the other side for territory control. And uh, that's where the capture the flag sort of notion comes about. So we launched Ingress in 2012, and, you know, over the next several years, uh we're, we were focused on making Ingress huge. And, uh, you know, over the years, Ingress has crossed over 25 million downloads. And that, that has been a pretty, like, sort of slow and steady process. Um, you know, it's, it's a game that is best played with friends. And the, the, the reason why it grew was because of the social fabric. Um, you know, when, when people started playing, they would invite their friends and family, and a percentage of those would stick with the game. And, you know, very quickly... Uh, the game started, you know, growing that way. But then one of the things that we also did was we launched a, a bunch of events globally, which were these sort of, you know, day-long, massive scavenger hunt-like events, but, you know, using using Ingress as an actual, you know, tool where you were playing Ingress, you know, during a day and you were trying to ensure that your faction won. And, uh, you know, these events really took off. You know, the first event that we ever did was, Roughly 20 people or so, and uh, you know the the in 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 the over the over the years these events grew up to you know over 13,000 people assembling in a single city uh, where we're basically taking over a bunch of city blocks and people are moving from one block to the wow. other trying to control as much territory as possible. So so over these you know multitude of years there was a lot of learning that came about as we saw people play the game, as we saw how the game grew, you know, through the social fabric, you know, of the player base, as we saw and learned how people enjoy these events, what is about these, what is it about these events that they like, what are the game mechanics that they enjoy. We made a bunch of decisions, of, you know, in the early days of Ingress to ensure that when more people played, it would lead to more fun. And, uh, and, and those really helped, you know. So, so over the years, there was a lot of sort of learning that was coming about. And in, in 2014, uh, you know, uh, John uh, met with, uh, you know, uh, the sort of the head, the CEO of the, the Pokemon company, you know, Mr. Uh, Ishihara. And uh, they had an amazing meeting, a bunch of series of meetings. And uh, they, you know, basically made the decision that this sort of real world type of experience would make a lot of sense for a Pokemon type of game. And uh, because Pokemon is all about sort of exploring and discovering and finding new Pokemon, you know, in the sort of virtual world, you know, be it Kanto or Johto, uh, those different regions that you have in the, in the handheld or console games. And uh, it made a lot of sense. It was just this natural fit. So, you know, when the, when the Pokemon deal got signed, we were all just collectively super excited because there were a lot of Pokemon fans on the team. And, uh, and that's how sort of, you know, the, the sort of Pokemon Go project kicked off, you know, in sort of 2014, um, 2015, you know, sort of timeframe. And uh, by then, you know, we've, we'd had almost three years of learnings from Ingress. And, you know, the team sort of brought those learnings to bear, uh, you know, for Pokemon Go. And, you know, we had uh, Tatsu Nomura, who was our product manager for Pokemon Go, a huge Pokemon fan himself. Really, you know, he, he also played a lot of Ingress. So, you know, he really understood the mechanics that we were striving for and uh, really ensured that, you know, those would also sort of come to bear in Pokemon Go. And now Pokemon Go has not reached thousands or millions, but, but hundreds of millions of players, right? Yeah, that is correct. So, you know, to sort of go back in time a little bit, you know, to back to sort of, you know, 2016 when, when we launched the game, the, you know, the three sort of core principles that we wanted to ensure, uh, you know, the game would deliver on were, you know, number one was exploration. We wanted to ensure that when people played this game, there would be a purpose and a reason for them to venture out of their comfort zone. So, you know, let's say I live in San Francisco uh, in, in the DuBose Triangle neighborhood. And if I, if I only just play there, then I should have a certain amount of fun. But if I go to a different neighborhood like the Mission or the Financial District, 
there should be a there should be added benefit that I get out of it. So that was one exploration. The second was uh, fitness. Uh, so ensuring that the more people walk, the more rewarded they are, you know, in the game. Um, and uh, you know, the again, the thesis was to get people walking more. And the third was real world social. When you play this game with other people, uh, it should be a lot more fun than it is when you play it solo. You should obviously have a ton of fun when you play solo, but when you play with other people, it should be more fun. So, you know, with these sort of principles, you know, uh, we, we sort of went ahead and ensured that the game feature is actually delivered on these. So, you know, for instance, on the first one, uh, you know, Pokemon appear in the in the real world depending on the geological and ecological attributes of, of that place. So if you're by a water fountain or a lake or by the bay, um, you'll find more water type Pokemon. Or if you're, you know, in a in a park, you'll find more grass type Pokemon. So, you know, check on the exploration piece. Um, the, the second one was, you know, fitness. So the more, uh, you know, as you play Pokemon Go, you collect eggs and uh, the more you walk, the more likely you are that you will hatch that egg and reveal, you know, a new Pokemon. And with the third one, you know, we had a bunch of features like gym battles or, or raids where when, when a lot of people come together, they can, they can take down a really uh, powerful Pokemon and, ha- and stand a chance at catching it. So with, with each of these features, really what we saw was, you know, people were walking more, finding new places in their city, and also, you know, in a place of sort of making real-world friends. And, and, you know, we heard all these dating stories that came out, you know, people meeting because of Pokemon Go, and uh, families enjoying the game together because it had that wide appeal and, 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 and so much more. And I think, you know, we, when, we, when we were prepping for launch, we, you know, we'd done a bunch of marketing before, uh, nothing too big, but we'd put out a, a, a trailer. We, we had um, a bunch of sort of stories about the game that had, you know, gone out uh, through our PR strategy. And we knew that there was a lot of excitement and anticipation, uh, but we definitely did not expect the, the sort of crazy uh, global phenomenon yeah. crazy that, it that, was, that it became. Right? Now, again, beyond the, the fun, the walking, the dating and everything, uh, is there an official revenue number? I, I saw somewhere online it's over a billion dollars. Is there, is there a number that you could share in terms of total revenue that came out of Pokemon Go? Yeah, we, we, we haven't revealed uh, revenue figures publicly. Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I think, like, you know, the game has definitely been, uh, you know, commercially successful. I think uh, for us, again, like, you know, it when we when we plan out for the year when we plan out our you know objectives and key results i think we you know our intention is still to go back to those those three sort of attributes of exploration fitness and and uh, and real world social you know it it for us if we can drive quality engagement if we can drive a lot of monthly active users and daily active users then you know the revenue will come but that's not the focus, you know. The, the revenue is not typically the focus. The focus is how do we ensure um, a really delightful experience, and you know, an experience that brings people back over and over. Yeah, and please, please don't get me wrong. I mean, somebody who has mobilized hundreds of millions of players, having fun going outside, certainly deserves revenue. I mean, this is the Wharton School after all here. Um, but can you can you uh, explain a little bit how you are translating engagement into revenues? Uh, there seems to be multiple ways here that. Uh, opportunities of, of for monetization. Can you talk a little bit about the the revenue model here? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you know there are uh, a couple uh, revenue models uh, for Pokemon Go. One, which is you know the primary revenue model for a lot of free to play games, uh, which is in app purchases. So you know you can buy items in the game, such as incubators that are used to hatch eggs, or raid passes that you use to do raids, or you know. Uh, these sort of packs that include, you know, uh, great balls or pokeballs and uh, lures and, and a bunch of other sort of, uh, you know, uh, items that you can use to enhance your gameplay experience. Now, the, again, one one important thing that we wanted to ensure was that anyone that wanted to play the game absolutely for free should still be able to have a phenomenal experience. So that's where we sort of started with. But we thought of like what would be the items that would really enhance gameplay mm-hmm. experience and make it super fun. So, so that's how we sort of kicked off the you know in-app purchase model, and and that is something that is the sort of primary source of revenue you know for the game. 
um, a secondary source of revenue for us, and you know that is thanks to our sort of real-world game roots, is uh, you know what we call sponsorship partners. So because these games uh, get people moving in the real world, you know we've we've partnered with uh, you know a few really amazing brands that we love and respect um, to to check if there would you know be a, a world where. Uh, people would actually gravitate towards their physical location, you know, because of the game. So, for instance, you know, in Japan, uh, we partnered with McDonald's, um, where McDonald's stores in in Japan were all either gyms or Pokestops in the in the game. And uh, you know, the that model is basically uh, it, it's a sponsored model. But what what we've also sort of worked on is trying to net out sort of a cost per visit type of mm-hmm. fee. Where you know, for every you know n visits, there's a certain cost that you know that the partner would pay. So, so that is something that's been very well received. Uh, you know, that's a model which we've sort of pioneered with Ingress, and it's you know a lot of the Ingress partners are still existing partners. Uh, you know, in the U.S., we partnered with Sprint and Starbucks. Mm-hmm, yeah. um, you know, we we had a bunch of partners in Europe as well. So, so that's a sort of secondary model where you know it's it's you know at at a large scale. That revenue also becomes sizable. So I need to um, I need to cut something. you off here. I should be. I have sure. like one important last question as a Harry Potter fan. Do you have a forecast when the Harry Potter game is going to be out? <laughs> uh, excellent question. Uh, you know the team is working hard on the game. We did put out uh, a teaser trailer uh, in November. Thirty second trailer and, uh, on YouTube. I saw. It's awesome. So can you give us mm-hmm. just a thirty second preview of the game? Uh, there's not much that we've revealed about the game publicly yet. Uh, you know, uh, what we have shared is, you know, uh, we, we've learned a lot from Ingress and with, from Pokemon Go. And I think, you know, we look at the, the Harry Potter game as, you know, an evolution of this type of a game. Um, this, the, the Harry Potter Wizards Unite game will be coming out in 2019. Uh, we will be revealing a lot more about it over the months. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's a game that, you know, I think uh, Harry Potter fans and even, uh, you know, the few people that, that aren't familiar with Harry Potter, which I think is really few because it's such a global phenomenon, uh, I, think, and I think fans will really love this game experience. Sounds great. Unfortunately, that's all I can say. <laughs> we'll have you back on the show when the title comes out. Says Bhagava, the head of global product marketing at Niantic. We've reached the end of the show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Tevish. And on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.